up and, uh, and dumped. Fire hose. If we were fire hosing. Uh, and off we dropped, dropped a lot of information uh, over a variety of things. Uh, and, and I kept watching you guys were like right there. So, uh, you, so, so unfortunately you've encouraged me <laughs> to keep dumping. <laughs> Uh, and and it, it, it's 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 interesting. I, I still struggle a little bit, I think, sometimes in gospel doctrine because I want to have a wonderful gospel doctrine teacher in our ward, and I want to just kind of keep jumping in with additional stuff, and um, I have to bite my tongue and hold myself to like two comments. Uh, but you, when you start getting kind of the whole range of things, it's going to be fun for you to be able to have the full context when we're looking at at these scriptures. Um, so as, as we get started today, um, let's see around here, okay. So I want to start with a couple of questions. Um, Richard Bushman, and we, we mentioned this a few times as we were going through church history, he mentioned that our LDS history is very often our theology. What does he mean by that? Our history is our theology. Yeah? Well, the history includes a lot of visions, prophecies, and um, commandments. Yeah. And, and in order to get those things, we have to go back to the historical events. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Now, theology means the study of God. Right. And we have learned an awful lot about God line upon line through the history of the church. And the history of the church is really a history of a bunch of questions. And each question has given us more knowledge. More Every time Joseph would ask a question, here would come more theology. Yes. That's right. So when we're talking about where did this stuff come from, sometimes we've got to be able to put the historical background behind that. Yeah. Well, if we look at the Book of Mormon, that there's a lot of history in there about how the Nephites progressed, the wickedness, the righteousness. And the, the history of the Book of Mormon also gives us some context about where their theology and things came from, right? Um, and, and, and the danger, of course, is taking that too far, you know, where, again, like we've talked about, if somebody wants to know what Mormons believe, and you're starting with gold plates and angels and first vision, sometimes that can be very confusing. When our, when our theology, yes, is Christ crucified uh, and his mercy and his love, but on top of that, when we get additional information, that's coming out of our history. So we're, we're walking a very careful balance, are we not? Trying to not emphasize our history too much, especially as we found out how many times in the last year did we look at each other and go, well, we used to think it was this and then it's this. The history changed and so a lot of people thought the theology had changed. So, so we, we have to focus on our theology. What is our theology? What do we believe about the Savior? But at the same time, we have to know our history because that's where the roots and the questions and everything kind of evolved from. Okay? Now, that said, as Latter-day Saints, how do we remember our collective history? Because the, the amazing thing, the, the knowing, having a history is, is helpful in terms of uh, uh, connecting a body of people together. 
Uh, if, I, if I go to a Sunday school in Argentina this next week, I'm not, but if I did, and, and, I, and I asked a question uh, about um, something related to the first vision, would they know in Argentina about the first vision? Sure. If I then went to uh, Taiwan and I mentioned something about the stripling warriors, would they know about the stripling warriors? Sure. Isn't it interesting that when we talk about historical events, that one of the things it does, it brings us theology, it brings us knowledge, but look at the other thing that it does. It binds us together as a people. There's a cultural piece to the fact that says they understand Camorra in Chile as well as the Philippines as well as Kansas. We have a combined collective knowledge of reference, uh, and 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 I, I think that that helps that that helps that brings us that connects us as a body. Does that make sense? Now notice though that um, Camorra, for instance, or the the first vision, the sacred grove, is not just a theology; it's a story. Can you tell the story of what the first vision was and the sacred grove? Sure. If, you, if you're in uh, Russia and somebody brings up about the stripling warriors and they go, well, we've never heard about the stripling warriors. Do you have a story? Mm-hmm. So... Is it, or if we were going to we could be in uh, Africa and we talk about pioneers and handcarts. Do you think they have some heard some stories or some knowledge about pioneers and handcarts? <coughs> Maybe not as much as Utah or Wyoming or, or something like that, but still there's a story that goes with that. So at the end of the day, we are a storytelling people. I guess that's that's my point. And those stories give us context, and those con- that context gives us theology. That, that without getting to, we are storytelling people. We tell stories, right? And those stories embed in our minds the, the lessons trying to be taught. So we tell stories. Now. Come on, baby. There we go. Now. How important then are these stories to our faith? How important is it that we all know the same stories? Why? Well, I look at the resurrection. That's a story. Yeah. And that is so central to my belief. Yeah, and we're going to get into Christian Christian stories in just a second. In fact, that all today is going to be about Christian stories. Okay, but as Latter Day Saints, how about our collective stories? They're they're essential to our testimonies, our personal testimonies. Sure. We have an opportunity to experience those things or to hear those things, and that also gives us an opportunity to feel the Spirit into. Figure out for ourselves: Are these true or not? And what does that mean? For yeah, because now we have that story, and that's going to bring up questions. And we look at those historical events. Okay. 
Can I ask a question? Yeah. You're talking about collective stories. Like, uh, I have two questions. Are you talking about we, uh, we understand the story all on the same context? What do, how do we tell the, our story to people who don't have the same context? Uh-huh. What kind of the bigger context would help proclaim the gospel? Oh. Oh, thank you for thank you for helping me push the lesson along here. She says, how do, how do we tell those stories to people that don't have the context? Or how do we tell the stories when our view of the story might be a little different than somebody else's view of the same event? Yeah, even say, uh, I'm an immigrant. Uh, yeah, I've been right. in this country for uh, almost 20 years. But I noticed even the, uh, the, the born, born Americans, uh, we, we all have different contexts. You know how we grow up, and uh, we see things different. And uh, I don't know if you know. Oh no, I th- no, I think that's, that, that's beautifully well done, especially like for an immigrant. Then we go I'm that that Valley Forge might mean one thing to to you guys, and may, Valley Forge may mean something different to you, or have to be explained. Yeah, I'm looking for if there's really an answer to like uh, what Heavenly Father's design. What is the 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 uh, Heavenly Father's context for the human being to... Oh, you're good. Yeah, what is Heavenly Father's context? Yeah, and so, because he's telling stories, the Savior told stories, and then we're trying to understand, does our context match? Uh, Or sometimes with other faiths, we may be telling the same stories, but from a different context. Oh, well, Satan's got his context. Yeah, let me tell you. Do you think if Satan were telling the story of the war in heaven, you think it would be a different story? Yeah. I remember when we were when we were down at the the Panama Canal and we had a um, uh, a. Panamanian, Panamanian, Panamanian guide, and talking about the fact that there was a time when the the Panama Canal Zone had a fence over it, and there was a kind of a revolution within the country, and there were five, I think there were, if I remember right, and I'm going to really butcher this, but there were like five guys that climbed the fence and started the the revolution. Uh, and and he and to us it's like well those were intruders in the the Panama Canal zone and he says to us they are heroes that they're the ones that started this thing and they're very proud of these five guys and they celebrate them every year okay so you're right so sometimes context depends on understanding the people and their context when we're looking at the same events okay and if you're not sure about that get together with your siblings and talk about a certain vacation or talk about a certain holiday event and see if you're telling the same story because you're going no that didn't happen or even with your own kids you know my kids will look at us and go well we used to always do that and we'll say well we did it once (laughs) by accident (laughs) 
No, that was our tradition. That's our story. Okay, and it's shaped us. This is what our family was, and they tell stories. Okay, well, in a religious sense, then, I think it's interesting. Our collective stories to our faith are important that we can go to another ward or another stake, and they understand stripling warriors. They understand Laban and the sword. We have, we have a connection with people. Now we may have a different interpretation about what happened, but we begin with a common story. Okay? Now, for Jews, how important were their stories? Okay? When, when, when they are exiting Egypt... And the Lord says, I want you to remember what I did for you. How does he set it up? The Passover. The Passover, the Passover is a collective remembering of what God did for them. Right down to the Seder where the child says, why is this night different from any other night? Well, this is why. So, if I talk to a Jew in Albania, and I'm going to talk about manna, does a Jew in Albania understand manna the same way that a Jew in New York does? Probably pretty close. It's about stories. And if, we're going to, if they're going to talk about things that come up in their struggles in their daily life, and, and, and one Jewish mother looks at another and she says, well, remember Esther. Does that make a difference? Sure, it's a collective story of those, those events that then they connect to and automatically there's a context. Stories were critical in Jewish history, and they still are. So, so in this remembering then, there are you, there you are, come on, you can do it. There it is. So, let me give you an example. We have, in the New Testament, we have the Gospels. And then we have the letters of Paul, starting with Romans and working through. The, we, have, we have the Pauline letters and then some James and some Peter and, and some John and stuff like that. Okay, How many stories do we have after we get through Acts? We have some of Paul's experiences... In great detail? No, not much. How many stories do we have after Acts? Very, very few. And we're not going to be talking about uh, the Pauline letters and, and those things today, but I want, you to, I want you to be aware of the fact that there weren't that many stories, and that's why the rest of the New Testament after the Gospels is harder for us to negotiate. Why is the book of Mosiah easier to read than the book of 2 Nephi? The stories. Why is Alma easier than Isaiah? More stories. Because stories are how we hang our knowledge there. Okay, It's how we put all of that together. It's about stories. Okay. 
So, if that's the case, then where are the stories? Where are the stories of the New Testament? Jesus used stories. We're going to talk about that in a sec. In the Gospels. In the Gospels. The stories are in the Gospels. Now, the question that I would have then uh, is, isn't that interesting? If stories are important to Judaism and stories are important to collective faith, how often and how much did Paul in the New Testament keep quoting Jesus' parables and Jesus' events and Jesus' healings and all of those kind of stuff? How much is Paul doing that? Oh, is Paul doing that? No. In fact, we have we we can find one quote of Paul directly of Jesus. So, uh, and you go, well, wait a minute. That would make sense that if Paul is trying to teach people, even especially Gentiles, he's going to have to bring them the stories of Jesus, right? And the parables and Jesus' teachings. Here's the Sermon on the Mount. Where is that stuff? It's not there. Why is that, do you think? I think Paul zeroed in on the resurrection. He did go there pretty heavily. Yeah, he went to the resurrection and, and his teachings. If there are any stories to be told, they're about his own shipwreck and, and all those kind of things. There is one about the unknown God. Yeah, he is talking about the unknown God, but he's actually kind of teasing the, the, the uh, Greeks there at Mars Hill about those kind of things. Was it his background? Well, wait a minute. No, his background. She says, was it his background? He was a Pharisee. He studied under Gamaliel. And, and, and so he knew it and he would have been steeped in it. And, he's very, and he was really conversant in Torah. He could have probably quoted you the Pentateuch. Yeah. I don't think they've been written down yet. There we go. Okay. And that's the answer. If I, so here's today's trivia question. If someone say, in chronological order, in the order in which the books of the New Testament were written, what, would be the, what was the very first book of the New Testament that was actually written down? The entire New Testament. Nope. Nope. This will be actually this will be a good one for you to go home and tease them tonight at dinner. What was the very of the entire New Testament, Matthew to Revelations? What was the very first book written? <laughs> Followed by First Thessalonians. Is that after the Gospels or is the Gospels written later? Uh, 
Okay? So let me ask you again. Why wasn't Paul quoting from, from the events of Jesus? It hadn't been, yet been written down. Okay. He didn't yet have them. Now, what, how much would he have known of Jesus? Where, did, where would he have gotten his knowledge if it wasn't yet written down? Some by revelation. In fact, the closest we get to, here's the writings of Jesus, is actually like 2 Corinthians 12 when he says, I knew a man that was caught up in the third heaven, and he did this, and I, and I said unto me, I have a thorn in the flesh, and I asked him to remove it, and he said no. You know, it's like there's this dialogue going on between him and the Lord, and it has nothing to do with what happened during his earthly ministry. This is a, this is a revelation that Paul had privately. But it was his own... His own, his own experience. That very, you know, where he was turned. Sure. And, and, he will, and he will quote that a little time, that Jesus told me this. But what you're not getting is him saying, the Lord said, no, I won't remove that thorn in your flesh. And by the way, this was just like when I was talking to Matthew, and Matthew said this. You know, you're not getting these... Or it's just like the parable... You're just you're not getting these connections, and there's a reason why. And this is part of what makes Paul fascinating: is Paul is writing, and and perhaps dying before the first gospel is actually even penned. And so part of what he's preaching is pure doctrine: Christ crucified, becoming a new person in Christ, all that kind of stuff. And he's doing it without the aid of the gospels. The only witnesses that Paul knew, he had talked to James um, when he was in Jerusalem. Uh, he talked to Peter, but about half the time he's really ticked at Peter. <laughs> he's mad at Peter because Peter keeps offending his converts. You know, so for the most part, that's kind of the order. What's that? Oh, there's a couple of these I left out. I had, I had a space problem. As much as anything, I wanted you to just kind of have in mind that says the Gospels were among the last books actually committed to, a, to papyrus, to writing down. Everything else, the Pauline letters, uh, he writes from, as he's writing from uh, Ephesus, uh, and he's writing in, um, from prison, uh, Romans, Philippians, Colossians, uh, Philemon, and Ephesians are all written from prison. And, and again, that, that's a lesson for another time. But it's still while he's in there and he doesn't have the benefit of the Gospels to read. He must have been really close to the Spirit to be able to remember those things. Yeah. A long time after the Savior. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. Well, much of what he talked about, though, was, was Jewish doctrines. He was. Yeah, and, and he was well trained in that through Kamehameha, whatever you said earlier. Yeah. I mean, he, he had one of the best teachers. He did. So. But, he was, but he went contrary to his teacher, Paul did. He went, well, I think, I think uh, Gamela was a little soft, you know, on, these, on the way. You should be attacking the way, the, these Christian people, stronger than you are. And I'll go, I'll go get them stoned. You're a little, you're a little soft. So... Um, well, he wanted to wanted them to uh, live and let live. 
Yeah. Yeah. If they're false. He didn't want them to go after. No. He he says if they're if they're that false, they'll burn themselves out. We've had a number of false prophets, and they these false prophets become obvious after a while. Don't go get them. He goes, no, I'm I'm zealous in protecting the Torah, and I will make sure that these guys are punished uh, for doing all this kind of stuff. Anyway, so anyway, keep that in mind because it means that. Uh, the Gospels are going to come later and Mark uh, that we're going to talk about in a second the Savior dies when? 30, 33 AD somewhere in that range Okay, the first, the first Gospel is being penned later now let me give you one more example before we hop into the Gospels let's say that we did this um, what if I said to you, um, we're gonna, we need to record the events of the American Revolution. We want to remember what happened in the American Revolution. But whoever's going to write about the American Revolution, those that were actually there, so we might get one from Patrick Henry, and we might get one from uh, Nathaniel Green, and we might get something from George Washington, and all those kind. They're not going to write until 50 years after the event. And in some cases, we might have the book of George Washington written a hundred, the first time it's written is a hundred years after. You think, well, he would be dead by then. Yeah. yeah. So it might be the book of George Washington taken from his records or something, but he didn't actually pen it. And what if I said to you, the only book that we're going to have that's contemporary, that's, that is written really, really close within a decade of the events of the American Revolution is going to come from Benedict Arnold. <laughs> who was a general for the Jews who then when the Romans take over he becomes a general for the Romans that is a man by the name of Josephus so again if you've got that if you've got that, ba- that, that description of the American Revolution you've got to look at who's writing it and so much of the day to day stuff that we have about the Gospels actually came from Benedict Arnold. It came from Josephus, who was a, was, who was a uh, general across both sides. Okay? And the ones coming from the Gospels, people that were eyewitnesses to the Savior, are gonna, the first ones are going to come 50 years after and then 100 years after, which, which put it much farther away. Yeah? Josephus is interesting. Josephus, uh, uh, when, when they attack his city in the north and he defects to the Romans and becomes a Roman general, he is writing the history of the Jews, including information that we have about Jesus and the fall of Jerusalem and all those kind of things. But it's not as antagonistic as you might think. He's still a Jew at heart. But he's still writing it to Ro- to, for Roman readership. <laughs> No, he's not a follower of Christianity or the way. He is a Roman. In fact, he will live out his final days in Rome. So, so in a sense, Josephus is our closest that we have to the actual events. Everything else, starting with the book of Mark, is going to come decades after the fact. So that's part of... So we, we start to put that in context. Okay, so, yeah. 
Why did they wait so long to write it down? Oh. Like the same pork. Okay, hold on to that idea. Why did they wait so long? I'll answer that in just a second. Okay. There's one other point I want to mention about the, the Gospels before we dive in. One of the ways that we have had, and it's something that, that kind of evolved over a few decades, was that maybe, and sir, maybe the best way to understand the Gospels is to do it by harmonizing it. Uh, Bruce R. McConkie's great book on the doctrinal New Testament was built on harmonization. Let's take the four Gospels, put them up side by side and try and tell the same story. And that way we'll understand the events. Okay, now, let's say that I did that with you at General Conference. And I said, you know what? Elder Uchtdorf and Elder Holland and Elder Bednar all kind of basically gave the same talk on charity. <laughs> so rather than look at the entire talk, let's just take kind of the quotes that are in comment, common and spread them across there. And that will give you the idea about charity. And we're, and, and we're going to harmonize Bednar, Holland, and Uchtdorf to do it. What's... See any pro Does that work? Or do you see a problem with that? Depends on what you're going for. Depends on what you're going for? Yeah. You're losing the content yeah. of what? Of the message they each intended to you're using You're losing their content by, by pulling them all together, right? Okay. Does President Uchtdorf or Elder Uchtdorf tell a different kind of story and style than Elder Holland? And how different is that from Elder Bednar? So simply because you want to utilize that they use the same scripture, so therefore they're all the same, and let's just amalgamate them together, what have you lost? The personality. Life their life experience. Personal perspective. Their personal perspective on what? On where they're going with that. Where was Elder Holland? He used the same scripture. Where was he going with that? Who was he addressing it to? Would that be... Di and what was the purpose of why he's talking about this? Is that different from Elder Bednar? Sure. Bednar has a different style. He has a different kind of thing. And then if we're going to throw Elder Oaks on there, President Oaks on there, okay. No. Oh, he said, talked about the same thing. Let's harmonize them. Look at what we would lose. Um, because each one had, even though they may have used similar material, they had a different focus. They have a different audience. They have a different style. And, and you would lose them, you lose the person simply because they used the same experience or the same quote. Does that, does that make sense? And you, and you accept the story according to what you have. No, they don't see. They, she says you lose how you would see it. But you know what? When 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 Elder Holland is speaking, so we want to have all of them. We want to have all of them. 
separately. Yes. Because you need to know where's Elder Holland going with this? Who is he addressing this to? Because now when I see it through his eyes, it may be the exact same scripture, but it has a different flavor to it. Yes. Because he's going in a different direction to a different audience. And when you're listening to something that's funny according to your background, how do you see things too? And if you identify, let's say with Elder Holland, or he's speaking about something that's close to your heart, you're following his track. You're following where he's going. So just to say, well, Elder Bednar said the same thing. Let's throw a part of Elder Bednar into that talk. You know, no, Elder Bednar has a much different doctrinal focus about where he's going. And it's just like the stories in the Bible are meant for it. All generations, not just for women and The stories are meant for all generations, but part of what we're going to find out today is that each gospel writer, whoever they are, had a different focus, and they, were, they had a different audience in mind, and they had a different purpose in writing. And if you harmonize them, you will lose the separate voices. Does that make sense? That's why I want to want to take today and let's like let's go through the gospels. But I need you to see the not the similarities in the gospels. I need you to see the differences, because each was a different writer writing to a different population. Now, if that's the case, for instance, if I am let's say that I'm writing. Um, let me take a step back. Mormon. When Mormon is saying, I have a thousand years of history, I got to go into all these records and I got to pick and choose which stories I'm going to tell, which stories I put together because I have a very specific focus. I want them to know that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus keeps his promises. The title page says. Now, if I'm going to write American, if I'm going to write American history book, and I have a particular idea that says, well, I think America is not a great country and it, it was too many slave owners and it was all oppression, stuff like that. Which stories am I going to choose from American history? And how am I going to tell it? And if I'm also going to look at American history and say, I'm going to tell a story of American capitalism, how our economy is better than everybody else. Which stories am I going to choose? Which events from American history am I going to pick? It's based on what I'm trying to get done. That's what historians do. Make sense? Yeah. When I went back to college, I, the first class I took was American literature. And I was much more mature than normal college kids. But I looked at, wait a minute here, these people came to for religious freedom and look what's happening to them here. They're, yeah. They're suffering consequences. Sure. If I have a religious bent and I'm going to tell American history, am I going to choose different stories and different people to tout and, and things like that? Okay? Yeah. Hey, I apologize, but I kind of got lost what you were saying about Josephus. Did he write some of this or did Josephus writes the, the history of the Jews. Okay, so what does that have to do with the New Testament? One of the, we, the stories we're about to talk about, in the, new, the, the earliest that we have, are written decades after. From Josephus, we get the closest 
within a decade oh, okay. of where so it's the closest to historians like to get um, if if we're trying if, if if in history like we want to talk about Joseph like Brigham Young being transformed with the mantle of Joseph Smith in front of the people in Nauvoo it's one thing if we have somebody who wrote in a journal the next day about what happened or that night as opposed to somebody who's going to write in a journal 50 years later of that remembrance. So we tend to put a little less weight sometimes the farther out we get because we like close remembrances. For the Gospels and the events of some of the historical events of Jesus, the closest we've got is, Josiah, or is Josephus, who was a traitor and he had his own view on things. And the Gospels, as we're going to talk about, the best one that we've got was written uh, 30 to 40 years later after Jesus' events. Okay? So, alright, so let's start. Uh, the very first Gospel uh, that was actually penned was the book of Mark. But Mark is interesting because there's some things that we know about Mark. We think he probably wrote around A.D. 60. Uh, remember, Paul is writing about A.D. 55, the 50s. So Mark is writing. But we know that Mark was not an eyewitness. Uh, it's possible that he could have been a companion to both Peter and to Paul. Uh, uh, Paul references a uh, John Mark. Peter references a Mark who was, um, he calls it like his son. The problem is, is that Mark was about as common as Mary. So it's hard to know if this Mark is the same Mark. So do we know who Mark really was? No, we really don't. We don't know who the author of that really is. Probably a Mark. Mark, and it could have been one of the guys we just mentioned, very possibly. But there's a, it has been suggested that perhaps Mark might have been um, a companion, like I say, to Peter. And so he was writing the things that Peter had told him. Um, he, Mark is more likely to highlight the weaknesses and misunderstandings of the disciples. He points out their flaws more often, that they didn't know where Jesus was going to do, and that they misunderstood, and that they're fighting for dominance next to the table. So Mark is a little bit more open about, these guys weren't always, oh, they were pretty rough people. Now, It's obvious as you read Mark that he was not an eyewitness. One of the ways that, that we know is that he didn't understand the geography of Israel. He's pretty quick to say things like, uh, Jesus came to Capernaum and he taught the people in the synagogue. <clears throat> and the next day he was in Jerusalem and he taught the people there. You go, whoa, that's a, that's a pretty quest hall. Okay. Well, uh, and when he was done in, 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 in Jerusalem, he was, speak, he was speaking in the Galilee. And he did this. And you go, oh, 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 he's just hustling around the country. Yeah, he's flying. <coughs> and I'll tell you why he was doing that. 
I would say these days most scholars understand that if it was written uh, even 60 or 70 it was first performed as a play you have to look at Mark as a performance it was most likely done as a play okay it's kind of fun uh, that's why you get a lot of immediates and then he went there and then he went here and it's just like exit stage right <laughs> and then he's over here the next scene opens up and he's already in Jerusalem now why would they do it as a play possibly 5% of those in Israel were literate 5% so even if you're going to start writing it very early on, you got, hey, here's the here's the book of here's the book of Mark. This is the writings of Jesus, and and let's say it's in Greek. So even if you're literate and it's in Greek and you read Aramaic, and what little bit you can read is in Hebrew. You learn that from your bar mitzvah. <laughs> So you can read a little bit of Torah in Hebrew, but you're going to speak Aramaic, but the prominent language in the area was Greek. And this is written, Mark is written in Greek. So even if you were literate in Aramaic, you're not a literate in Greek. So even if you got it written, nobody can read it. Yeah. What language did Jesus speak? <laughs> What language did he speak? He, he, he primarily in the north of in the north of uh, Judea in, in the Galilee. The prominent language would have been Aramaic, except for the fact that the city of Sapphira and Tiberias and and uh, um, uh, the other Roman cities and they're interacting with these guys they would have had to speak Aramaic but if you're going to be a, a carpenter and a stonemason you better learn what? Greek. Greek. So he, not only did he know Aramaic he had to be able to speak Greek and he's certainly speaking Greek to Pilate and then he would also have to be able to read Hebrew if he's reading Torah. So actually, he was very literate in terms of... And, and a lot of people would have had to be bilingual. It's like if you lived in Montreal. Do you think you'd know how much English and French would you know? Probably a lot. And it's just part of what you're going to do. You're going to have to learn these multiple languages. Okay? All right. Uh, it's like somebody moves here, they've got to be able to learn if they're not a foreign, you're a foreign language speaker, you got to learn English, but you also got to learn Texan. <laughs> Where'd fixin' come from? I don't know what fixin' is. <laughs> All hat, no cattle, I don't know what that means. <laughs> y'all? Y'all what? <laughs> okay. So it's written as a as written as a play, um, and so I thought uh, it would be interesting for you to see it as a play. So let me take just a second here, so we can get this done. It's a wonderful man by the name of Max McLean, who who performs the Book of Mark as a play, um, which is very cool. Hopefully we can get this going. Oops.
But I want, I'm going to advance it a little bit ahead so you can kiss it. Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, my love, with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net in the lake, but they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, they saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat of the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in that synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet said Jesus sternly, come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. <laughs> as soon as he left the synagogue, he went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many with various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak, because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you! <laughs> Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else. <laughs> to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices Moses commanded for your cleansing. 
as a testimony to them. Instead, he went away and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Okay, that's chapter one. Okay. Is that great? Um, if you will go to, um, let me catch the light. Uh, you can actually, it's in, you can just go to, you can just go to YouTube, and just put the Gospel of Mark, Max McLean. Yeah, Max McLean. He did a, he actually did a recent one on C.S. Lewis on the uh, screw tape letters uh, here in Richardson that was fabulous, but. There it is. That is in the first decades uh, after the Savior. This is the way that the gospel was taught. Does that, does that make it more teachable? I think it does. And I think it, it makes it much more entertaining. And by the way, it gives you some sense why, why in a sense he's going, he went immediately here. And then he goes immediately over there. And you just go, well, that doesn't work with the geography. But if you're telling a play... Now you're spreading the good news and you're spreading the word of Jesus' teachings to people that can get it and understand it and enjoy it. Um, and so that's, that's the book of Mark. So a lot of the people would have understood the geography. Yeah. No, and especially where, and in a lot of cases, this is being performed not so much in Israel, it's being performed where? Mark's a Gentile. Where's he preaching? Ephesus, Corinth, uh, all around the Mediterranean, where they really don't care the difference between Capernaum and Jerusalem. They just want, what did Jesus do? And what did he say? And how did he say it? Okay? Yeah. I've always wondered, why do we ever want to do anything in secret? It worked. Aren't we always supposed to testify? Yeah. Well, th that, that's, a, that's a good question because in Mark's, and, and more than any other gospel, Mark's gospel keeps saying to people, don't say it out loud yet. Because ultimately, part of it was the, the crowds that it started to generate, prevented them from getting to get around, and also what he was going to begin to say was going to stir up so much opposition against him, he wasn't going to be able to get things done because of the leadership of the church. Or of the, of the the Pharisees especially. Okay. All right. Yeah. I have a question about earlier writings, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. Would they have been earlier than Josepha? Yeah. She she's saying, would the Dead Sea Scrolls? Of it? Yes, they are. And in fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls were known on the Sermon on the Mount. And as we're going to talk about it, not necessarily today. Um, Jesus quotes from a little bit of the Dead Sea Scrolls in Nazareth at the synagogue. So they had the writings of the Essenes around them contemporaneously. So, I'd like to ask a question. Yeah. Who decided which books were going to be in the Bible? Oh. She says, which, who decided what books were going to be? Uh, if you look at... Part, part of what Constantine did when we get to trying to organize the church and everything, because there were all these books floating around, it was a committee. Uh, and they had to start pulling it 
together. Do, do you know that when it comes to like the book of Matthew, we have 5,000 scraps of, of uh, the book of Matthew on papyrus. And they were by, so it was by committee. They were going to start pulling that together. And then they were going to choose the ones that were most, most seem most uh, canonical, that they seem most divine. But it was a committee. And, and again, you look, you look kind of to around Istanbul and, and Constantine when that's happening. Okay, so what's the next book that's written then? Well, one of the next ones you get then is, is Matthew. Matthew's going to write about a decade later. Um, for, for Matthew, it is important that it get this book be historically right. And uh, do we know who Matthew was? No, not really. There's a lot of debate among scholars about half say this was Matthew the tax collector. Uh, some are saying because it was written so much later it could have been someone taking the writings of Matthew the tax collector. It could easily be somebody else. But, it, but the early Christians kind of tended to ascribe this to Matthew the disciple. Okay, so we don't know for sure. Here's what we do know. Matthew is going to draw on two sources. He has the book of Mark in front of him. He'll, he'll quote Mark and then he'll, he'll change things and add things like, no, it took a day or two to get from Capernaum down to Jerusalem. So he's adding geographical pieces. Uh, without getting too complicated, we think that he was also drawing on another source that scholars have called the Q. Um, if you take the, the real quick thing without, again, trying to be too complicated here. Um, if you take the book of Matthew and you take the look at book of Luke, there are about 50 to 60 sayings of Jesus that are identical almost word for word and then they will put other stories and and narratives around it but there are about 50 to 60 stories events things like that that are identical between Matthew and Luke and and most scholars now believe that there is there is a another source material sitting out there they couldn't figure out anything to call it they call it the Q which is German for the source and so he's getting additional information from somewhere else and then writing his own remembrances on on top of that okay yeah, well, and the, the genealogy has, has some importance here. So let me, so, so who is Matthew? Who's he writing to? What's, what's Matthew's purpose? <laughs> Matthew is a very, very, very Jewish writer. And his primary target is Jews. He's writing more to Jews. And I'll, and I'll I'll demonstrate that in just a second, but I just need to see that where where uh, Mark is writing, kind of putting together something for kind of the illiterate, and something that would be easily palatable, and prime and a lot of Gentile. Uh, Matthew is Jewish; he's writing to Jews, and he ha he has a, an interesting goal in mind. If you follow very closely what he's doing. Um, He's making a case for a new Moses. 
If you're going to try and convince Jews that Jesus is the Christ, you better have a, a collective story to draw from. So he's picking the stories that say to them, Jesus is a new Moses. How do we know this? Well, you know what? He was born in humble circumstances. Hey, there was a slaughter of the innocents. He's out lost for 40 days. He's being tempted for 40 days, 40 years. And when he gets ready to teach the people, he gets up on a mountain and he comes up with a new law. And 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 then by the and then how does it then the very last of Matthew, what happens to him? He's caught up to a mount, he's caught up to heaven, off of a mountain. Look how much like Moses he is, guys. He's a new Moses. Okay? So his goal primarily is to speak to Jews. Does that make sense? Yeah. I thought he was also trying to show them how Christ fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. Yes, and he would. And so, so if he's going to be a new Moses, let me... Because remember, the, there is a scripture that says, One like unto Moses will come. So I've got to prove uh, from the Old Testament. So he's going to show, as it is written... He's more likely over and over and over. Mark's just going to say, he went and did this and the people were amazed and he healed people and stuff like that. Matthew's going to say, as it is written, and he's going to quote Isaiah and he's going to quote Jeremiah and all this. As it is written, he is the fulfillment of Torah. He's, he's him. He's here. But let me prove it to you. Okay? That's, so there's Matthew. Yeah. Yes. It is. And, he, and he, even if he's telling the same stories, again, he's going to say, this is how it fulfills prophecy. This is how it was written. This is who he's doing. You know, he's making this a very, he's a very Jewish guy. How could you reject a very Jewish guy? He's another prophet. And he just created a new law off of a new mountain. We call it the Sermon on the Mount, but it's kind of like Sinai. It really is. By the way, did, did, Moses, did Moses part the water? Yeah. Did he have control over the elements? He did. What did Jesus do? He turns water into wine. Can he, control the, can he control the seas and the elements? Yeah, he does. He calms the seas. He's making sure all these stories are in there with his focus. Okay? All right. So, when it come, when, for Matthew, he's going to do things like he's the slaughter of the innocents, uh, control of the elements, he delivers a new law, he's taken into heaven, on and on and on. Okay? All right. So, the next... Next book written is Luke. Luke. And this gives us what we call the synoptic gospels. The first three gospels are synoptics. They have so much in common together. So who, where's Luke getting his material from? Because he's about a decade after Matthew. 
Luke is getting it from Matthew. It's obvious that he has Matthew's stuff in front of him. And we know that he's also drawing from that material, that source. Um, I do find it interesting that sometimes people have thought this mysterious Q source might have been Mary. That, that wouldn't be complete. I mean, how did Luke get the idea that Mary pondered these things in her heart? You know, there seems to be some evidence of somebody maybe having context there. Yeah. Yeah. And, to, and I, and I kind of like that idea, that, that it could be something like that. But, but yeah, Luke is doing that. So who's, who's Luke? Who, first of all, he is, by ethnicity, he's what? He's Gentile. He's a Gentile. Possible that Matthew was too, but more than li- but more than likely it's the Matthew we think. But Luke is a Gentile, so that means that who's he writing to? Who would his who would who would his target audience be? Yeah, Gentiles. He's writing to Gentiles. He wants them. He wants them to understand. So, so in that case, if you're, l- 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 let me ask you: if you're if you're a Gentile who is converted to the gospel, and you're trying to write about Jesus to other Gentiles, how would you do that? What stories would you emphasize? What would you leave out? Yeah, there's there's the challenge, huh? Here's what he did. Because he doesn't just write to Gentiles. Who else is he writing to? And this is what I think makes makes Luke to me one of my one of my favorite books. Women. It's written, by the way, it's written in a high Greek style. They're, they're, they're kind of high Greek and lower Greek. We know that as we translate the sayings of Jesus, Jesus wrote in a very common Greek. He's speaking, speaking to common people. Luke is a very high Greek. It's a very highly stylized Greek. Um, he tells many stories twice. They call them the Lucan doublets. Uh, he will tell a story, and it's almost a direct quote from Mark. Then he will tell it again with more information. So it's obvious that he's correcting Mark along the way. Uh, in fact, does somebody have does somebody have the? Can somebody pull up the book of Luke real fast and read the and read the first two verses? Have you got that? Real loud. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Oh, okay. Listen again. Repeat again. Look at what Luke's. Look at what his goal was as he was writing. Do you want me to add JST? Sure. Okay. So it starts out as I am a messenger of Jesus Christ, and knowing that many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us even as they delivered them unto us which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word Ah. a lot of people have been writing 
including Mark, including Matthew. And there are other eyewitnesses that have things floating around of Jesus. So I'm going to take this, I'm going to put it together in one narrative and deliver it mainly to who? Out to the Gentiles, out to the Greeks, because you guys weren't, you guys didn't have a chance to have eyewitnesses. Just as a reminder, in the early days of the church in Utah, when was Fast Sunday? Thursdays. If, if this is like the 1860s, 1870s, and it's Thursday, and it's Fast Sunday, who gets to go first? Who's going to get up and speak first? Because there was a time reserved in most wards for people who got to go first. Those that had known Joseph Smith personally. They got, those that got to bear their testimony first were those that had a personal remembrance of Joseph Smith. The eyewitnesses. We put a lot on eyewitnesses, don't we? In a, in a, in a court of law. Who do we want to hear from? The eyewitnesses. Because they were there. They saw it. They can tell us. And Luke is saying, there have been a lot of things floating around out here and they are coming from eyewitnesses. So let me take that information and let me write it down. So that, because how many of the Greeks were ever going to be eyewitnesses to Jesus? <laughs> very, very few. And in fact, they happen to have shown up at Passover or something like that. Okay, so he's going to say, "I got to, I got to correct. I'm going to correct Mark. I'm going to add some things to Matthew, and I'm going to put all of this stuff together. But I have a particular where where Matthew was writing to Jews. This man has a particular focus because he's going to he's going to write uh, as a as a, he's also going to write Acts." Possibly was a companion to Paul. But his focus is going to be on Gentiles who in Jewish eyes would feel marginalized. And he's writing especially to women. Which women? Marginalized women. That's why your story after story is going to be like the, the Samaritan woman, the, the woman caught in adultery, uh, the woman touching the, the, the hem of the garment, um, the, the, the widow of Nain. He's going after not just women, but women who are on the outside of society, and he wants you to know how much the Savior loves those women and the things that he did for them. Yeah. What happened to Luke to make him want to do that? Isn't that a good... That's a really good question, isn't it? Um, she says, what happened to Luke to make him go there? There's a suggestion there that he's a physician, and it could be that he's treated a number of these women. But it feels more to me than that, because he was really, really sensitive, and he's going to go like, like the woman that comes into the house of the Pharisee and, and kneels at his feet and starts anointing his feet 
with oil. Um, and then he's always making sure at the end of that that the Savior is kind to her and, and, and heals her, her uh, gives her salvation. So it is a very kind... Now, by the way, to Gentiles, there is a similar sense of saying, if we've joined the way, we've joined the Christian church, and, and what we're going to do is we're going to have a common table, and we're all going to eat together. These Gentiles have had that experience of showing up for supper, and the Jews go, well, we don't, we don't eat with Gentiles. That would be against the law of Moses. But Paul said it was okay. <laughs> and Luke says, yeah, the, the Savior reached out, not, he reached out to Gentiles, and he especially reached out to Gentile women, those that felt like they were outcasts. <laughs> Could the writer of Luke have been a woman? Yes. We don't know who the author is for sure. Could it have been someone that, that penned that and then drew on some of the Lucan writings to do that? It wouldn't surprise me at all. Because he certainly is very sensitive uh, on that. Okay? Yeah? He also tells the other Oh, he does. He does. He's very, he's very careful on all of the details of, of all of that. Yeah, he really, really does. So, so Luke is, um, the, uh, in addition to the, the commentary that Thomas Wayman has written, the New Testament commentary that is really well done on this, I also have uh, uh, S. Kent Brown's book on Luke. Uh, his commentary, and it's a honker. It's like it's like a thousand pages of uh, Brother Brown has done his homework on, the, on this monster. Okay, um, <coughs> from BYU. It's well done. Okay, ooh, we've got 15 minutes. Okay, all right. So I want to give you I want to give you an example of the difference and why it is that I think we need to look at the differences between some of these Gospels. And I want to point out the one from Matthew to Luke. Uh, Matthew writes the Sermon on the Mount. And, and Luke comes along. It's called the Sermon on the Plain, but I think it's the same one. But he shortens it. He takes it. He turns it upside down. He reorders the sayings of Jesus inside the Sermon on the Plain in a very cool way with a much different emphasis okay so let's look at so here's here's Matthew and, I, and this is from the Sermon on the Mount if you greet your brothers and sisters are you doing better than others do not the people of other nations do the same therefore and this is this is Thomas Wayman's translation you will be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect I like that a lot you will be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be careful to not do your do good deeds in front of others for them to see. If so, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. When you make an offering, do not blow a trumpet before you as the hypocrites in the synagogues and the streets so that they may have the glory of others. Who's he speaking to? Jews who would understand about these alms in the temple and all of that. It's a very Jewish thing. And he's saying, and you will be perfected. 
Okay? Now, look at what Luke does with the same with the same thing. He reorders it, he puts it in a different form. Love your enemies, Luke says. Do good. Lend while hoping for nothing in return. Remember the people of the way living in uh, all over there were having all things in common, eating at a common table. Uh, do good, land while hoping for nothing in return. Your reward will be great because you will be gr- children of the Most High because He is gracious to the ungrateful and the wicked. And then He changes the Savior's words. And He says, Be merciful as your Father in Heaven is merciful. Wow. Now, that's had enough impact on me that whenever I read the word perfect, in the scriptures, I'm automatically translating it to merciful. Because think about it, at the end of the day, if you go into the, in the temple of Solomon and you go past the Holy of Holies and past the angels and you step in and there's the Ark of the Covenant and there are the cherubim, wings of the cherubim, and there's that seat that sits over the top of the Ark of the Covenant with the law underneath it inside. What do we call that seat? The mercy seat. Of all places, this perfected God would sit on the mercy seat. And in my mind, the highest form of perfection is mercy. So I can't tell you how much I love the fact that Luke, when he is writing this, he's translating what the Savior said from you will be perfected. He's translating to that to be therefore merciful. And then he says, do not judge that you may not be judged. That judgment in, the, in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount is way at the first. This is, do not judge that you may not be judged. Condemn not that you may not be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. The next couple of verses after this in Luke then go, have you got a beam in your eye? (laughs) (laughs) Remove the beam in your eye so that you can do what? Remove the moat from your brother's eye. I mean, we tend to just look at it as going, well, you can't judge. Take your beam and go away. (laughs) Don't judge people. Leave. Take your beam and go work on your beam. We forget, and and Luke makes sure he emphasizes the fact that he says, work on your beam and then do what? You're still in the moat business. (laughs) Come back and help them with their moat. Because you ever had something in your eye? Can you see? Can you think? Can you do anything? Can you pray? Can you, no! You gotta, it's just driving you crazy. And he says, hurry and get the, the beam, or as Wayman calls it, the log. Get the log out of your eye so that you can help them with their moat, with their speck. Be merciful. One last thing. Luke puts this story with Jesus looking up the hill at his disciples in front of him and over his shoulder is all the multitude he just healed. And the Sea of Galilee right behind that. He puts it in a very dramatic moment. 
to, to then look at his disciples, the twelve that he just called, and he says, Be ye therefore merciful to them. Whatever beams you got, get rid of them because they have moats. They have Torah moats. <laughs> they have Pharisee moats. Help them get rid of their moats. Because they need, they need to be blessed and they need to be healed. Be ye therefore merciful. That's the difference between Luke and Matthew. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. Love that. Okay. Uh, okay, so Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so we're missing one guy. The Gospel of? John. Gospel of John, we think was written uh, around 80 or 90, probably 90, could be later. Um, it's written after the fall of Jerusalem. So John has to be uh, the, the Jerusalem falls, Masada falls about 70 A.D. So he's got to be somewhere. Uh, when you go to Ephesus, uh, they believe that Eph that John brought uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, to Ephesus, and they have a particular spot where they say this was Mary's. This is where she lived uh, over here near the near the coast, near not far from the marketplace. Uh, the, that's the tradition in Ephesus. Um, but with John, so that John brought her there. Uh, Gospel of John. It's not, we don't think he drew on the cue. We don't think he drew on the others. He writes a whole, a whole book on his own. This we, and uh, one of the there's there's a there's a book on on John that just came out. The one I'm waiting for is by a wonderful BYU professor by the name of Eric Huntsman. Eric is writing on it. He's about halfway through, uh, and he says he's almost ready to call John the Peter James and John guy. He's close, but he's not quite there yet. We're still not exactly sure, but it, but modern revelation has kind of said this John was kind of the Peter, James, and John. We think, okay. So if we if we use that as our assumption, yeah. We just have an article in the Ensign all about John Revelator and that he was. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, it's been so I say modern revelation has suggested that scholars are pretty close to going there. Um, because he doesn't necessarily identify himself. There's a couple of... We could go into some of the reasons why they don't... Why there's a question mark. But the evidence seems to say, yeah, it's probably the John of Peter, James, and John. Okay. Um, he was a follower of, of John the Baptist. The Greek that he's writing in, the Greek that they have translated the book of John from, it's obvious that the Greek is not the writing of a non... Of a, of a normal Greek speaker. Greek is his second language. Which is actually uh, a point in the favor of being Peter, James, and John, who is not native language, would have been Aramaic. So, uh, so it's, not a great, it's not great Greek. Uh, he didn't mean his book to be history. But he's providing a purpose for the life of gifts of Christ. It's what, it's, what, it's what scholars call a high Christology. Rather than saying he did all of these healings, 
He, his emphasis seems to be Christ is the Redeemer. He, he is God and He redeemed us. It's a step above what He did historically. So his emphasis, about half the book is on the passion, the last week or two of his life. His focus is really drilling home there that I need you to know that he is the author of the atonement. But it's fascinating and we don't have an answer for this. Why it is that somebody that was so focused on Christ the Redeemer leaves out Gethsemane. And was it too sacred? Was he there and it's too painful? Was it removed? Was it possibly removed somewhere along the way? Um, the, the Gospel of John, apparently we've got some of the Greek writings that go back to like 150-200 AD and it was still there. Oh. Um, you know, Irenaeus and some of the early writers, Clement, believe that John was the John here. But he leaves out Gethsemane, which I think is is fascinating. But we get things from John like uh, John 17 talking about um, make them, Father make them one with me as I am with thee. The, inter the great intercessory prayer. It is trying to elevate us to, to his Godhood kind of thing. Okay. And appears to be written, written to believers. He's not trying to convert as much as he's trying to say, let me talk about the atonement to, in sacrament meeting. <laughs> let me take those that already believe and have you elevate that. Okay? All right. Now, there is a belief, by the way, Wayman is certainly one of those that believe that the book actually ended on 20. Chapter 20. And then... Chapter 21, which tends to be more about Peter, you know, the, uh, we go off fishing. Okay, we'll go off fishing. <laughs> and then, oh, wait a minute. Children, you caught anything? Well, no. Okay, cast on the other side. Or nets are breaking. It's the Lord. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, they dive out of the boat and swim over there. And then he cooks the meat and he says, love, love these more than me kind of thing. Um, that was, that's 21, and it seems to almost have been an addition uh, to the rest of it. That John almost came back and said, let me tell you what, what's going to happen to Peter and the manner of his, of his death. Okay. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Um, that's a lot, huh? How we doing? It is spinning. Are we spinning yet? <laughs> okay. So, so yeah. Where did when John went to the Isle of Patmos? Did he write? The, the, the book of Revelation. Well, we don't know. That's why I say we don't know where he wrote from. It's possibly wrote from Ephesus. Uh, he might have been on the Isle of Patmos and wrote both books. We don't. We really don't know. Um, we again, uh, yeah, all of these Greek. We have these Greek writings, and they show up in 200 and 300 A.D. Uh, and then they're trying to guess, and and they look at the differences, things that seem to be have been added later. Okay. Uh, so, let, let me just finish with this. Um, 
again, had a wonderful gospel doctrine class yesterday, and and I wanted, and, and in listening, um, we have these wonderful stories that we that we get in the gospel, but I think sometimes, and I hope that we have a tendency either in our own teaching, either on our you know third hour at home or something like that, pull back just a little bit and recognize the context that it was being written in, and and Luke got to jump out at you that says here was an, an additional sensitivity towards women on the margin or this is how the, they were trying to recognize all the ways in Matthew that Jesus fulfilled uh, the writings of the prophets and that's why Matthew is using these particular stories and finally finally I would ask that when you look at the Gospels Ask yourself, why is this parable showing up next to this one? Why do we get this story and then this story and then this story? Because they weren't haphazard. The, the writers were bringing this together and they were organizing it to try and run a narrative that would, be, that would stick in our minds uh, in a way that we would remember. Um, so, yeah. Did we get the answer to why they waited so long to write this down? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> we ju- we just know we just know that they did. I think part of it was the fact that there wasn't a lot of literacy. Part of the fact was, <coughs> I think they were out uh, uh, preaching and and they didn't have a time to kind of organize them. Um, and then also, I really do believe, especially for. Uh, Matthew and Luke and John, the the fall of Jerusalem, the the Roman destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. meant that all of that, um, so much was now lost, and they were now having to preach to a group of people from from Ephesus and Lyconia, all the way maybe to Gaul, maybe to to Spain. And we've got to get these things written down. I think they did it for the same reason that the Jews in exile in Babylon said, we've had these sort of scraps around of what happened at Genesis and Exodus. It's time we write them all down in one piece because we're losing our heritage. And so that's when they wrote the, the Pentateuch, the five books, that they did it in Babylon to make sure they wouldn't lose their heritage. And, I, and to me, that makes sense that that might be one of the forces behind writing the gospel is that Jerusalem has fallen, uh, Gethsemane is gone, where do we go from here, kind of thing. So, yeah. Can we ready to talk about the fraud in the New Testament? <laughs> I keep forgetting to mention the, for, the forgery, don't I? Uh, I'll, I'll give you a hint and I'll start with it next week. <laughs> it's, it's, in, it's in 1 John. And there, there was something that we know from the from the papyrus that was added in thirteen, in the thirteen hundred fourteen hundreds, that that was added, and it has to do with the Trinity. See if you go through First John and see if you can find what what looks like a statement right out of the Nicene Creed. Because it's, it's there, and we know that it was never in any document until the fourteenth century. 
Okay. So, th- so there's your hint. You g- give me a chance to go look. <laughs> anyway, uh, bearing my testimony, these are, these are inspired books. They give us a chance to know our Lord better. And more than that, they give us stories. They give us stories that we can plant and teach and share and share collectively as a group uh, that enable to kind of build our testimonies. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.